The following is a conversation between Gail McGovern, President and CEO of the American Red Cross, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. For 139 years, when this nation has faced a crisis and an extraordinary set of challenges, the American Red Cross has always been there to provide the help, assistance, and expertise needed. That is as true today as it has ever been. And here to tell us about it is Gail McGovern, the president and CEO of the American Red Cross. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Gail. Thank you so much, Denver, and thank you for having me on the show. Let me start with an issue of vital importance to all Americans, blood donations. Uh, the Red Cross collects, I guess, maybe some 40% of the nation's blood. With everything that's been going on, Gail, where do we stand with the blood supply? Well, I have to say this has been a roller coaster ride. And if you looked at our demand curves, it looks just like a roller coaster ride. When the COVID-19 pandemic started, elected officials were getting up in front of their constituents and saying, isolated home, only two reasons to go out, pharmaceuticals and groceries. And we watched in horror as Drive after drive is getting canceled because businesses are closed, universities and colleges are closed. And then hearing that people are told don't go out, we quickly called elected officials, we called the Surgeon General, and they were kind enough to say blood is an essential need, go out and donate blood. And we very narrowly averted a blood shortage. And then as people started coming out and donating, Another thing happened, which is the hospitals were making room for COVID patients and putting off scheduled surgeries. And these weren't just cosmetic surgeries. These were surgeries like bone marrow transplants or heart procedures. And we watched this happen and we started ratcheting back our collections a little bit. And then boom, suddenly demand went up again. And we're at a point where our inventory is getting low. Certain blood types are desperately needed. And we're putting a call out again to action for people to come to donate blood. And donating blood is a completely different experience now than it was before COVID. Everyone has to wear a mask. Everyone has their temperature taken when they present, not only our donors, but our staff. We have our donors hand sanitized before, during, and after the donation. We wipe down the beds. The beds have to be six feet away from each other at least. And all of these things make us a bit slower. And it's been quite a challenge to use these new protocols and at the same time provide the nation with 40% of their blood supply. But I have to say our folks are genning back up quickly the American public usually heeds the call whenever we are looking at a blood crisis and we're putting out an appeal for as many people as possible to come and donate blood. And we learned that at a time when people are fearful, they're worried about their health, there's unrest, that when you donate blood, you walk out feeling really good about yourself because you know you saved someone's life. You mentioned a second ago that there was a shortage of certain blood types. What would those be? So where we are particularly short is blood from African-Americans. And the reason that's important is there are certain sickle cell diseases where 
only African-American blood becomes a good match. And sickle cell is a terrible disease. You don't get transfused enough. It is so painful and it's life-threatening. So we've put a special call out for African-Americans to consider giving the gift of life because we have certain sickle cell patients that can only handle certain types of transfusions. And we're hopeful that our appeal will also appeal to that community because we're in, in dire need there. And you mentioned a moment ago as well that a lot of the elective surgeries were canceled because of the coronavirus, but they're now back online. Is there a backlog of those, which is putting even more strain on the system? I think it really depends on the hospital. Some have opened up the ability to do that sooner rather than others. But those that had used every OR, every piece of space, every bed in the ERs, they weren't taking patients for quite a while. And they do have a backlog. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're seeing such a spike in demand. A hospital suddenly can handle patients and there are these mini spikes. But now the level of need is getting close to what it was before COVID. And the factory, quote unquote, it's hard to gen it up and bring it back down. But we are seeing a lot of hospitals suddenly open up and the call for blood is going up. And I'm just so proud of the organization to be able to keep up with this because it's a head spinning experience, truly. And I also saw the other day that under the guidance of the FDA, you guys have recently announced that there's going to be a change in the restrictions of blood donations from gay and bisexual men. What is that change going to be? So the old criteria said that if a man had sex with another man in the last 12 months, that they were ineligible to donate. The change brings that down to three months. Mm -hmm. And this has been an FDA mandate for years. Yep. For the longest time, it was a lifetime ban. We were able to help bring it down to 12 months. And I am just thrilled that we were able to bring it down to three months. And there are other countries that have the three-month eligibility timeframe. So there's a lot of evidence that it isn't harmful at all to have brought that length down. So we're just thrilled that the FDA stepped up to this. It's a big deal. They also released some of the restrictions on mad cows, which is helpful too. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand why the FDA errs in the side of caution, but we don't want to get so restrictive that we create a blood shortage. So we're delighted they did this. We're hopeful that the ban is lifted entirely someday, but this at least is progress. Yeah, step in the right direction for sure. Let me ask you something I've always wondered about, and that is when the supply is normal, how many days of blood are available to meet the nation's needs? This is an excellent question. And it ranges from about five to seven days. And that's because a number of these blood products have a very short shelf life. So platelets, which is used regularly for chemotherapy patients, it only lasts five days. So the process of getting platelet donations from the donor into the hospital we have to be very quick, and we are. So we don't keep a lot of inventory around. The longest is plasma, and plasma can be frozen. 
But for whole blood, when it gets to be about 20 days, the hospitals tend to transfuse. It can last longer, but the hospitals prefer to get fresh blood. So our inventory is between five and seven days. There was a point when people were not coming out because of social distancing and canceled drives that we got closer to two days and we started actually rationing blood to our hospitals. It it was scary because the last thing we need is another health crisis on top of the one we're dealing with. Oh, you're absolutely right. Let me pick up on plasma, convalescent plasma transfusion therapy. What is that procedure? What do we know about it? Does it work? So I love the questions. There are some early signs that it is effective, but it is an IND, an investigational new drug. The Mayo Clinic is responsible for looking at a fairly large assay of patients and control group and testing the efficacy. But this is something that we have done historically I understand it started 70 years ago where you transfuse convalescent plasma for various illnesses. I think it was used during SARS, for example. So it's kind of a tried and true methodology. And we're really hopeful that the efficacy studies bear that out. Mount Sinai did a small study with just a few patients and it looked very promising, but we Uh, needed to do a side-by-side with more patients. Having said that, we've already distributed about 6,000 units to hospitals. And that's just the American Red Cross. All the blood bankers are doing this. So I would suspect that number is at least double, maybe even more, because we're 40%. And hospitals are using it. We've heard all kinds of anecdotal stories of patients recovering as a result. Some of the people that donated convalescent plasma are now on their second time donating. Mm -hmm. And it's really exciting to have the opportunity to be part of this. We asked people to demonstrate that they had a positive test for COVID. And we do an antibody test as well to make sure that there are antibodies. And uh, there's a very close correlation like between 95 to 99%, we see those antibodies and we're thrilled to be able to play a role. Right now, our goal is to actually have inventory in the freezer in case this actually turns out to be a licensed product that's very effective. And uh, I have my fingers crossed that that's the case, but so far it looks promising. And we ask anybody who has dealt with this horrible disease and has recovered to consider donating their plasma. It's a wonderful gift. Yeah, it certainly is. That's all very, very cool. Let's move on to some other issues. The Red Cross has always had a longstanding and very special relationship with this nation's military men and women, not to mention veterans. Are you doing anything to help address the stress that they're currently under? So the short answer to that is yes. I I would say arguably we probably provide more services to the military than just about any other nonprofit. During normal times, we have Red Cross volunteers embedded in all the military bases in the U.S., several of them overseas, and we handle a lot of emergency calls from family members, military members, and veterans. Usually that runs about 450,000 calls a year. We're actually seeing about a 10% increase Mm -hmm. as people are calling us 
because they're now unemployed. Veterans, for example, people are calling us because their spouses are unemployed. We coalesce all of the nonprofits that help the military. So if they call for something we don't provide, we hand them off to a nonprofit that will. And we usually have workshops. We have workshops for kids on dealing with deployment. We have workshops for returning service members when they come back from deployment. And we quickly stood up a number of those virtually. We have one for dealing with stress. We have one for coming home from deployment that has a module for dealing with your kids, anger issues, et cetera. So we're still providing services to our brave men and women that are serving and also veterans and their families. Fantastic. Gail, some of the most heartbreaking things we've all seen is when a family has to say goodbye to a loved one via FaceTime. And the Red Cross has always been there to help those struggling with loss and with grief. Have you been able to reimagine that in any way during this pandemic? What you're describing, Denver, is something we call family assistance. And we set those up physically during mass shootings, during the Boston Marathon bombing, et cetera. That's just something we do. Most people don't even know about it. But we are there staffing vigils, memorials, helping with funeral arrangements. And because of this world of social distancing, we actually put together a virtual family assistance program virtually. And Mm -hmm. it helps with mental health counseling, grief counseling, and sadly, people are taking advantage of that capability. It's an overwhelming time when people are doing funerals by Zoom. And uh, the loss is even more poignant when you can't be there. And that's why we quickly stood up this virtual condolence site for people to be able to cope with what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. With all that is happening in the news, it can be easily forgotten that there are ongoing emergencies that the Red Cross needs to attend to. So let's talk about one that's occurred and maybe some others that are still to come. First, uh, those two dam failures in Michigan. How did you address those considering these new rules of engagement and the environment you're now operating in? So that is a great example. And I'll also talk to you about the tornadoes that ripped through the Midwest and uh, South too. We've completely changed our protocols for disaster response. First of all, we try when possible to get the people that have survived a disaster into hotel rooms or dormitories. And that Uh way they don't have to social distance. So for example, in the tornadoes that I mentioned, We had 1,500 people living in hotels, and we had virtual volunteers. If these families don't have internet connections, we give them an iPhone, and Mm -hmm. we have families that are getting virtual support, financial aid, mental health counseling via an appliance, and it's really quite astounding. We still obviously have volunteers on the ground. What they are doing is they are taking boxed meals and food and supplies like hygiene kits, et cetera, and leaving them outside the hotel rooms so that people can gather them up and bring them in. And this is a bit of a hardship for people who are so used to giving hugs. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, it's just it's difficult. In fact, 
you know that we respond to about 64,000 disasters a year, and most right. of them are home fires. We've responded to 17,000 home fires so far since COVID-19 reared its ugly head. And mm-hmm. same thing, we send the volunteer out. They put an iPhone a good social distance away from the family. They step back. The family picks up the phone, and we FaceTime with the family to figure out what they need. The dam uh, burst in in Michigan was an example of where local officials stood up to shelter. And we have a special protocol because sooner or later with this hurricane season upon us, we're just not going to find enough hotel rooms and dormitories for people. So we will be opening up shelters. What was interesting about this, we have a protocol now that we take everyone's temperature when they walk in, including the volunteers. Everyone has to wear masks. We're going to set up the cots at least six feet away from each other so people can social distance. And anyone that has symptoms or is COVID positive or has a fever, there's an isolated area where local public health officials said that they will help take care of those people. Now, Given all that, what happened in Michigan was congregate shelter was open and a large number of people took advantage of the the food and the supplies, but they stayed in their car and they Mm. slept in their car because they didn't want to go in the shelter, which is completely understandable. So we suspect that if there's a big disaster, we're going to see a lot of that. We're going to see people camp, which we see in California all the time. And we do sadly have some experience in all of this. During the campfire in Northern California, we opened up a shelter and an outbreak of the norovirus occurred. We had, I would say at least half the people, maybe more, were camping outside of the shelter. The people that were inside the shelter, the folks with norovirus were completely isolated. Public health officials took care of them. We had rules that you had to use hand sanitizer when you go into the shelter. Everyone had masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we know what this looks like, but it's, it's a challenge. And yeah. I totally understand why people want to stay in their cars and be safe that way. And where possible, we're going to continue to do dormitories and hotels because there's goodness there. You're preventing the spread of the disease, but also I would imagine people are more comfortable yeah. than they would be in a congregate shelter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned a moment ago, hurricane season. What kind of hurricane season is forecast? What are you doing to prepare for it? And maybe what should people be thinking about if one of those storms is coming their way? So there's a lot in what you just asked. So let me unpack it a little bit. First of all, the National Hurricane Center and NOAA have predicted a really rough hurricane season. Mm. Memory serves, I think they said there would be 19 named storms, and we've already had three, and that's very unusual at this point in time to have had three. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, they're unable to predict which ones will make landfall and where. But the odds are that we're going to see a big hurricane. It happens almost every single year. So the way we've been preparing is stocking up on PPE so that people, when they present in the shelters, will have masks. We have trained thousands of volunteers on providing comfort virtually. 
so we can do a lot more of that. We're also have protocol where we're not doing any cafeteria style feeding, which we tend to do in our large congregate shelter. Everything will be boxed up and individualized. And we're working with public health officials in all of the areas that are hurricane prone so that we know they will be there to support a congregate shelter if need be in mm -hmm. case there's COVID patients that present. So we've done a lot of tabletop exercises, a lot of drills. We're working very closely with FEMA. And unfortunately, this isn't their first time dealing with this either. Yeah. So we're doing everything possible to be as prepared as possible. And in terms of what people should do, it's what they should do in a non-COVID environment, which is make sure you're informed, you're watching the weather, you're listening, you have a battery operated radio so you can be informed. You should have an emergency kit so you're not running around looking for your important papers or anything else like that. You've got three days worth of food, clothing, and everything else in case you can't get to a shelter quickly. And you should know what you're going to do in the event of a hurricane. You need a preparedness plan. Mm -hmm. so pick up the kids. How do you evacuate from your home? What are your emergency contacts? Where are you going to meet up? So, and it's easy. It's just have a kit, be prepared, and be informed. That's it. And listening to you, Gail, too, it sounds as if if there's a silver lining to come out of all of this, is that in reimagining your service delivery model and particularly going virtual the way you have in so many different capacities, that that might help amplify what you do when we get back to normal. Would that be a fair statement? It's not only a fair statement, but it's an insightful and very accurate statement. We are, after every disaster, we have after action reports where we say, what did we do well? What did we learn? How do we apply what we learn to the next disaster? And I have to say, virtual care has become a core competency for us. And mm -hmm. we would be remiss if we didn't use it more often. In the olden days, we would take a volunteer to respond to a disaster if and only if they could be away from their family for three weeks and work 12-hour shifts seven days a week. And we have about between 30 and 50,000 volunteers that are willing to do that. But we can attract so many more people if we lower the number of shifts and gain the opportunity to respond virtually. Yeah, yeah. You'll we, be... it, we've also learned that in a mid-sized disaster, it is possible to respond with hotel rooms and dormitories. Mm -hmm. It is possible to do that. And even without a face mask, and coming back to a world where we can give hugs again, I believe that people that just lost everything are more comfortable in a hotel room than in a congregate shelter. So we should be mindful of that. If there's another Hurricane Harvey, that's obviously not going to work. But for mid-sized disaster, it's something we should keep in mind. Yeah. And the other thing, you mentioned the armed forces. We have big call centers where people are handling those calls. Well, since COVID, everybody's taking those calls from home. Mm -hmm. Technology lets you do that. And we also are learning how to save a lot of money. Yeah. You know, <laughs> internal meetings. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need to fly here, there, and everywhere. We're learning to be a lot more green. Do we really need to get a car and drive into the office every single day? 
we're learning a lot. We're an organization that loves helping others. So some of what we do obviously has to be physical. And let's face it, we have 8,000 people on the front lines collecting blood and everything else, but we yeah. learn a lot even about that part of our business. We learn we can be nimble, we can be fast, mm -hmm. we can be agile. They're ingenious things that we are doing across the board that we never would have done without this disaster. So to me, the silver lining is when all of this clears and there is a vaccine and we all come out and start living our lives again, our response and our mission fulfillment will have changed and it will have changed for the better. I agree. That is so interesting. And it's not a replacement. It's just an amplification of everything that you've always done. Exactly. That is so true. Well said. The senseless death of George Floyd. The Red Cross issued a statement to address community unrest and uncertainty. Share that with us. So I have to say in the 12 years that I have been at the American Red Cross, I have never experienced anything like this. Having the pandemic where everyone was fearful and worried and your typical Red Crosser has such a higher purpose and such a beautiful mission that we're able to put that aside. But I'm sure that every one of our volunteers and employees has had moments of longing to get out, uh, fear to get out. The, the place was on edge to begin with, let's say. But I send notes and letters to all employees. I've gotten hundreds of responses to this one particular one that you're referring to. Our community is hurting. Our African-American community is hurting. And we have seven fundamental principles and they're helping us get through this right now. We condemn a lack of humanity and a lack of unity. And those are two of our fundamental principles, humanity and unity and universality. And watching this unfold and hearing how Red Crossers feel about it and knowing that this is a sample of how the whole country is feeling right now. It's something like I have never dealt with before. And we're engaged in all of this too. In Minnesota, we've got about 51 people in hotels that lost their homes because of fire. We are supporting a big memorial service that is taking place. We're helping with vigils. In Houston, there's a big memorial service because that's where George Floyd grew up and right. we're providing health services, mental health counseling. There is a vigil in North Carolina. We're helping giving comfort in everything that we know how to do on a smaller scale because sadly these shootings and senseless deaths happen a lot. Mm -hmm. so having the whole country hurt from it is something like I've never witnessed. And I've told my team that we need to reach out to the African-American community among us and even if it feels awkward and you don't know what to say, an awkward outreach is much better than pretending this hasn't happened. And yeah. it, we're going to have to heal together. I've told my folks we have to not just help our normal constituents, but we have to help each other right now. And we have to lift each other up and get through this. It's heartbreaking. And when I look at the kinds of notes that I am getting, it's impossible for me to completely understand, but I'm learning a lot of lessons here just from reading the messages 
the heartfelt thanks, the fear, the yeah. challenges of raising an African-American son. It's all in there. And we just have to be unbelievably mindful of it. And we also are neutral. Neutrality is a principle. Impartiality is a principle. Independence is a principle. So we have to be really careful not to get caught up in the political fray, but at the same time condemn racism, condemn hatred, condemn violence. It's complicated, but I think your average Red Cross employee innately understands this, and we're all trying to just do the right thing right now. And what you just mentioned there, those are absolutes. Those are not political. Those are just absolutes for humanity. Absolutely. I keep saying neutrality doesn't mean silence. That's true. So with all this, there has to be a fair degree of stress on the organization. I just think about this, Gail. You got COVID, you got your regular emergencies, you're operating with one hand tied behind your back because of social distancing, (laughs) the unrest you just talked about, the active hurricane season coming. That is quite the list. Speak about the resilience needed and where does an organization go to find the needed bandwidth to address all of this? This is an outstanding question. So I ought to start by saying the Red Cross is built on disaster response. This is what we do. We are built to handle a disaster. Now, this is, without a doubt, in our nation's recent history, the largest disaster that we've ever experienced. It's like a Category 4 hurricane hit every single community in the United States at the same time with no end in sight. But I will say, I do see that our employees are getting a bit frayed. I do see our volunteers are getting a bit frayed. But I did 10 back-to-back virtual town hall meetings with the top 300 Red Crossers and leadership positions. And we used an icebreaker for everybody to go around and tell us something positive that they've done while they've been socially isolated. And the stories were beautiful. The faces were smiling. I've sent out notices like coping mechanisms from an optimist. And one of them was tempers are going to start flaring. You're probably going to snap at somebody. Forgive yourself for doing that, but call them real quickly and apologize. Mm -hmm. Um, take lots of breaks. We're all staring at the little camera on our laptops during virtual meetings. Don't do that all day long. We put out a pulse survey to see how people were feeling. And believe it or not, they were the highest scores. We do this a lot. We do engage scores a lot. We do pulse surveys a lot. They were the highest scores that we had ever had. Now this was pre all this unrest but they were the highest scores we ever had. People feel engaged, they feel cared for. We did a lot of special HR practices to help they feel cared for, engaged, and they just wanna help. Your typical Red Crosser is so mission-driven. And frankly, Denver, if they come to the Red Cross and they don't feel that way, it's almost like a cult here. Um, They don't last very long. Yeah, right. So I'm just so proud of the organization. They just keep stepping up. And I've told the team to consider this story that assume it's real, but I got it from my telephone company days where these two guys are laying telephone poles down a very, very long interstate highway. And one is looking forward and saying, we are never going to finish this job. 
but the other one's looking backward and he goes, but look how much we've done. Oh, that's a great story. It's mm -hmm. such a beautiful story and it's so appropriate here. I keep telling the team, stop, pause, and look at what you've done. It's mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. um, we're 139 years old, as you pointed out when we started. And the fact that we can embrace technology in ways that no one ever thought of, and we stand up so many things so quickly these days. I'm just so proud of the organization. And I have to say, there's so many people at home self-isolating, wringing their hands, wishing they could do something. We're doing something. And I think that elevates the mood in general, particularly before the unrest. Right now, everybody is in a somber state. At the end of the day, we just know how to lift people up and hopefully we'll lift ourselves up from this as well. Finally, Gail, I have such admiration for you as a leader, but let me ask you in terms of in a crisis like this, what are the keys and essentials that you've leaned on to help navigate the team through it? So I've learned a lot about leadership since I've come to the Red Cross Denver, and it kind of surprised me because after 28 years in for-profit, I thought I knew everything I needed. But what I've learned when it comes to leading the American Red Cross is you have to lead from the heart as much as you lead from your head. And I have learned to use that voice more and more often, particularly during this time of crisis. Mm. Um, and I'm leading with empathy because I know what a lot of people are going through. I've been isolated too. Until recently, I haven't seen my daughter in months. I haven't seen my two stepsons in months. So I know what a lot of people are going through and I'm leading as empathetically as I possibly can. And the other thing I always try to do is model optimism. I really do believe our country is gonna rise above all of this. I really believe that with all of my heart. So it's easy for me to say it because I believe it. I feel that when you take on that persona and you lead like that, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. It is contagious. And so I feel like modeling optimism is really important. And the other thing I've learned as a leader, and this was way before I joined the Red Cross, is if you pick really great people and you give them seemingly impossible goals to achieve, great things will happen. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And the Red Cross leadership at this time, they're just extraordinary. They're extraordinary. The dedication, the heart, the desire to help others, and the intellect of how to get us from here to there, it's stunning. It really is. Yeah. So I've learned as much from my team and from Red Cross leadership as I've imparted, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I will just finish with, and I really believe this, is the resiliency and the generosity of the American public, it's remarkable. People step up and open up their veins. People they step do. up and give us a $5 gift because they can't give any more. People step up and help each other. And that's why I think we're gonna get through this crisis. And I pray that we're gonna get through this moment of the civil unrest as well. Mindset is everything. And I was thinking about when you were talking about impossible goals for the team, it reminded me of a story that somebody said once that if you're having trouble pushing a rock up a hill, the thing to do is go find a bigger rock. 
because essentially <laughs> you'll change your tools and people will get excited. Look at that rock Gail's trying to push up. I want to be part of this. And I've always found that to be a, a real good source of wisdom. Well, I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to listen to you, Gail, and not feel compelled to do something to be a service. So what can people do? Where do they go to support your work, to give blood? Just tell us, give them a frictionless way that they can get involved. So we always need three things. And you mentioned the first, blood. Redcross.org, redcrossblood.org or even just Red Cross, or they can use our blood app to donate blood, which is very, very cool. It will even tell you when your blood is shipped and where it went, or they can call 1-800-RED-CROSS. We can always use financial support, particularly during this point in time. Our operations are much more costly with all of the new protocols. Once again, redcross.org. And we can always use volunteers. And mm -hmm. now so much as virtual, people can volunteer with their jammies on from their homes. So. <laughs> <laughs> you make everything so inviting. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Gail, for taking the time to share these insights with us. It is always such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks and be well. And thank you, Denver. You're a wonderful interviewer and I enjoyed the time immensely. Thank you. Take care.